0: God in heaven, thank you for this privilege to come into your presence in prayer. And I just ask now that what the people are needing today, Lord, I freely confess, I don't have. And so I pray that your spirit would be present in a powerful way, that you would open our eyes to the beauty of the cross and what it means to us individually. And as we go through the course of this day, may we be more affirmed that indeed the message of Christ our righteousness is meet in due season, and the third angel's message in verity, and it is what will prepare a people to stand in the day of God. Bless us, O God, I pray, and show us your glory, and I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are embarking upon a three-part journey. Uh, For those who aren't aware, um, well, first of all, The message is going to be, what was accomplished at the cross, and a thank you is in order. Thank you for the opportunity to be here. Uh, I'm from Unseen Media Group. It's a media ministry in southern Illinois, and um, formerly was a Tennessee boy for about three years and miss it. Miss it so much. I talked my mom into moving not too far from here, so I have more reasons to visit. Unseen Media Group, you can find more about our ministry on our website here, unseen.me. For time's sake, I'll leave it at that. We're a media ministry creating content to reach young people with the gospel. That's our burden. And uh, we have three meetings today, actually. Right now, this afternoon at 2.30 and another at 3.45. We'd love to see you here. This afternoon at 2.30, will be on the Law and the Covenants. And the message at 3.45 will be how to have assurance of salvation Um, We're basically walking through three phases of the plan of salvation, justification, sanctification, and what leads to glorification. Uh, We're going to cover the ministry of the Holy Spirit and how to be able to stay in at the end of time. So I'm really excited for this. I've prayed. uh, You know me. I know you, kind of. So I'm going to go ahead and get started. Um, Again, this morning's message is entitled, What Was Accomplished at the Cross? There are some very helpful documents I'd like to share with you before we begin, Uh, If you just want to take down the references for these, the first is the Signs of the Times, December 30, 1889, and the second is from the 1888 materials, chapter 87, pages 695 to 696. Um, Phenomenal article, the one in the Signs of the Times, just ridiculously good um, on what was accomplished by the death of Jesus. Even the angels were made more secure. Beautiful, beautiful reference there. All right, so two prefaces to this morning's message. The first is this, um... That my remote isn't working as well as my iPad, so I'm going to ignore it. That's the first announcement. Okay, the first quote is found here from 1888 materials. It was very helpful for me to kind of understand what the focal lens need to be of what we preach. We do not abandon. Some people fear that, you know, if we start preaching more about Jesus... We're going to abandon our core truths that make us peculiar. I don't think this is an either-or thing. I don't think it was ever intended to be. I believe that we should not run from our peculiarity. We have a beautiful message that's centered in the sanctuary. And all of this can still be Christ-centered. You don't have to abandon one to uplift the other, amen? You can preach present truth while talking about the loveliness of Jesus. And that's my burden today. But something that's helped me to see that is what's in this quote here in the 1888 materials, page 842 and then 842, or 844 to 855. It says, The preaching of Christ crucified has been strangely neglected by our people. Many who claim to believe the truth have no knowledge of faith in Christ by experience. They continue, I'm having technological difficulties at infinitum here, such as can be only found, actually go back because it's skipping on me now, It is this neglected part of the ministry which will be found the great instrument in the conversion of souls and in leading to the high standard of holiness which every church needs in order to become a living church. Two things I see from this. The first is that this is going to lead to the conversion of souls, the preaching of Christ and Him crucified. And as mission-minded Seventh-day Adventist Christians, are we looking for the conversion of souls? Yes or no? All right. Well, this can help with that. Here's the second one. That it also will lead to the high standard of holiness, which every church needs in order to become a living church. Some of you may have attended churches that you would deem as being dead. There's not a lot of life there, not a lot of growth evangelistically, not a lot of friendliness amongst the brethren, maybe, yeah? We're told here that the cross actually leads to a high standard of holiness to make it a living church. And how many people have ever heard someone say, yeah, 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 we already know the gospel. Everybody knows that. What we need to do is give them the meat. You never heard that before? The problem with that is that it's not biblical. Um, like, the cross is called meat in due season, we're told in the spirit of prophecy, first of all. And second of all, it's the preaching of Christ crucified because the same company would say, and they're rightly frustrated, that it seems that the church has lost its zeal for holiness. I don't argue with that, actually. I think that is True. But the answer, we're told, is actually found in the preaching of Christ and Him crucified. She says, this will lead to the high standards of holiness, which every church needs in order to become a living church. So removing Christ-centered, cross-centered, continual preaching in our churches won't actually lead to holiness. It's going to lead to discouragement or legalism, most likely. If you preach Christ with the standards, it's achievable, it's attainable, it's attractive, it's possible, and it's powerful. And that's the point that she makes She says there must be a life-giving power in the ministry. Life must be infused into the missionaries in every place that they may go forth giving the trumpet no uncertain sound, but with heaven-sent awakening power. Such as can be found only in the preaching of Jesus Christ, his love, his forgiveness, his grace. Beautiful. So this is kind of why I've, I've been more convicted as of late to have this central focus. And lastly, this in 1888 Materials 281. She says, the want, which is what's lacking, and the desire, the want in the religious experience is the acceptance of Jesus Christ as presented in the gospel. What most people are missing in the religious experience is this understanding. We're going to be unpacking this throughout the course of this day. But I'd like to begin with a sobering story. So I was teaching at a school of evangelism a few years ago, and I was asked to come as an adjunct instructor teaching on Christian service. Someone else is preaching in the afternoon on the cross. I'd love to be here for this. So as this person begins a the story, they didn't grow up a Christian, became a Christian later in life, in their late teens, I think. But they, they were knocking on doors after their conversion, kind of this radical conversion experience. And they were knocking on doors, and they get to this guy's house. And I forget if they were just distributing literature or selling literature. I don't remember which, but that's not really the point. So he gets to this door, and he says, hey, I've got this book for you, man. The guy says, come inside. So he comes inside. And he says, have a seat. So he has a seat. He says, well, what's what's the deal? Actually, I think he's still standing. But he says, "Uh, what's the deal, man? He says, hey, I've got this book. And it talks about the fact that Jesus died for you. And the guy says, and? What do you mean, and? Jesus died for you, man. The guy said, so what? So what? The guy says, sit down. He says, let me tell you a story. And he begins to tell him the story about a guru of his. This man, uh, in particular, was, was an Eastern religionist of some sort. He had a guru, and everyone in the village hated this guy for his beliefs because they were different than their views. And this guy was a great mentor to him, helped him tremendously in his Christian growth, or in his Eastern religion growth. And he says, because the people hated him and didn't like what he was teaching, they decided to take matters into their own hands. They took the guy from his house, they brought him out of the woods, and they chained him to a tree and did things I'm not going to share with children present or from a pulpit on Sabbath. But they basically removed his clothing and inflicted severe amounts of harm upon this man in waves to prolong his death for days. Animals are investigating him every step of the way. And the man is weeping as he's talking to this baby Christian and says, what my guru went through was way worse than what your Jesus went through. So why should I put my faith in him? (laughs) And this, this guy doesn't know what to do. Like, they didn't tell me that one in the Bible studies. And... He's just kind of wrestling, like, how do I answer this? I don't know what to say, because what that guy went through was technically worse than what Jesus went through in six hours on the cross, like, I don't, uh, and the only thing he can muster to say at this stage is, so do you still want the book? He doesn't know what else to say, and then he, he closes his story and addresses the students of this school of evangelism and says... Is it just the amount of physical suffering that Jesus endured that makes him our Savior? And if so, or if it's just how much physical suffering he went through, what makes his death, or if he's just dying for the good of humanity, what makes his death any more meritorious than the death of Mahatma Gandhi or Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. or any other martyr for the good of humanity? Now, please don't misunderstand me this morning. I'm not downplaying the sufferings of Christ. I'm about to explain them. But the point is a valid one. That many times when we tell people what the gospel is, we just say, Jesus died for you. There's more than that. And what that means to them, there's more to that too. This is what I'd like to communicate with you this morning. Um, so what gospel then? Well, according to Matthew chapter 24, Jesus has this saying he tells the disciples. He's giving the signs of the times, which are very relevant now, eh? Yeah? Yeah. And so in Matthew 24, 14, he says, and this gospel will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations and then the end will come. So I'm left with the impression that the language that Jesus employs here is basically a, if A, then B format. When A happens, then B is going to happen. So when this gospel, and he seems to be specific, this gospel is preached in all the world as a witness, then the end will come. Well, I have a logical question for you. Where's Jesus? Jesus isn't here. So it seems to me that what Jesus was communicating to the disciples was kind of a prerequisite for him to come, and there must be something about that process that we haven't fully gotten right yet or hasn't been carried through to its completion. It's one or the other. Maybe it's both. Yeah? I believe that the this gospel aspect is part of what will be helpful for us. It's the gospel that Jesus was preaching. Revelation 14 goes on to say that the everlasting gospel will go to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. Very similar language to Matthew 24, verse 14. So I'm left with the impression there's a connection between these two. Well, what is the everlasting gospel? We get some insight. In Manuscript 32, 1896. The message proclaimed by the angel flying in the midst of heaven, Revelation 14, is the everlasting gospel. The same gospel was declared in Eden when God said to the serpent, I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. So the everlasting gospel is the same gospel that was preached in the garden before Adam and Eve fell, actually right after they fell in Genesis 3. They fall, they're separated from God, God immediately makes atonement for them. Something that's innocent dies for their sins to cover them of their shame and their nakedness, which they will now place faith in this sacrifice for what will happen later in the cross. And not only that, but something innocent had to suffer on their behalf. And then God tells the serpent that the seed of Eve is going to crush your head, but you will bruise his heel. So twice in the gospel answer given in Genesis 3, we see a suffering Messiah. This theme continues. In Eden, his heel will be bruised. In Eden, tunics of skin. In the sanctuary service, God said, I've had enough of this distance between you and I. Isaiah 59 verses 1 and 2 says, your sins have separated you from your God. And God is our source of life. So separation from the source of life inevitably leads to death. God says, I've had enough of this separation. In Exodus 25 and verse 8, he says, let them build me a sanctuary. Why? That I may dwell among them. And this is the beautiful thing about the sanctuary message. Because there were two key central figures in the sanctuary a priest, and a sacrifice. Jesus fulfills both responsibilities. And this is very good news for us because the very person who's administering his own merits on our behalf is also acquainted with the human predicament. We are in such good hands, guys, in the midst of the investigative judgment and in the sanctuary service and what we believe is happening in heaven right now. We are in very good hands. Jesus understands and he's the best person for that job. But the sanctuary teaches us that the lamb is slain. What did the prophets say that a Messiah will suffer? What did Jesus say, I'm going to suffer? And the disciples hated this because, I mean, this Messiah guy is just going to, like, suffer for people? Like, that's not near as awesome as lopping the heads off the Romans and getting our land back. We're not excited about this at all. They wanted a militant Messiah, not a suffering Messiah. So they rejected this message initially. But then when Jesus is resurrected, there's disciples who are dejected going on their way back to the road to Emmaus. They're talking, Jesus says, hey, fellas, what are you talking about? Oh, man, haven't you heard? And then Jesus says, didn't you know that he had to suffer? You should have known. The whole Bible said so. But he says, didn't you know that he ought to suffer? And you'll never believe it. In the book of Acts, what gospel are the disciples preaching? That Jesus suffered. Go read the sermons that are preached in the book of Acts. They talk about a suffering Messiah. Lastly, in the book of Revelation, we're told about a Lamb who's slain. The central theme I see throughout Scripture in the plan of redemption is this. Jesus will suffer. I believe a suffering Messiah is a much-needed component in the everlasting gospel. Not to neglect, again, our unique message of a first angel's message, which, by the way, I'm covering that at the end of the message. I'll tie that comment. Anyway, it's a good point. You'll hear it later. All right. So how often, my question then would be, how often do we hear messages that highlight the sufferings of Christ? And I'm not talking about a Mel Gibson bloodbath. How often do we hear this in our pulpits? Generally not very often. Um, thankfully, that changed for me this summer. I did hear somebody else preach about that. Uh, oops, skip that slide because this is an old slideshow. Um, it was July 5th and I realized I heard that. But I've only heard, I've met two other people who heard this sermon preached. First time I heard it actually was July 5th, 2014. And I remember thinking it was the most pure gospel sermon I'd ever heard in my life. They just walked through Gethsemane through the cross, not a lot of commentary, just what happened. And I vowed I would never commit the sin of not preaching that ever again, which is why I'm sharing this with you this morning. I've met two other people that heard the same person share that message like 20 years ago, and they never forgot it. Never. One of them heard it in Thatcher Hall in a dorm worship 20 years ago at Southern. Have not forgotten it. Another person heard it someplace else. They said they've never, it's just vividly impressed upon their minds. That tells me something, right? If something can d- probe the depths of our being like that, it must be important. And we wonder why our older, younger, our older generation, our younger generations, are wrestling with assurance of salvation. 3ABN is getting an alarming amount of phone calls from Seventh-day Adventist adults and pastors who have no assurance of salvation. That's a problem. Our young people are wrestling with feeling good enough for God. They wrestle with feeling that they can be saved because they're hearing a whole lot about what God expects, but they're not being told how God enables them to do what he expects. So they think either I'm a loser or God is unreasonable. We'll deal with those two aspects this afternoon in both messages. So I believe that we're not hearing the full depths of the beauty of the gospel as part of what's missing. And I believe we have it within our midst. We don't have to go looking high and low to find it. Here's the gospel Jesus risked the eternal fellowship of the Godhead for you to be saved. He risked his own eternal existence for you to be saved. And we're told in 2 Corinthians verse, chapter five and verse 21, that God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus did not write a check for the price of sin. Jesus literally became sin and received the wrath of God towards sin to set you free. Far different than that. Not someone who's filthy-seeking rich writing a $500 check. This is someone risking their eternal existence because heaven would not be heaven to him without you. Knowing that maybe even people in this room will reject that at some stage in their life, he's still going to give it because it's what it would take to save them if they would say yes. So if you understand the definition of shame versus guilt, this takes on a greater meaning because... God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin. Guilt is that I've done something wrong. God uses this to awaken us to our need of Jesus, right? In John chapter 16, the Holy Spirit will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. He says the world, not just religious people. So when you've not done rightly, the Holy Spirit convicts you of this. Why? To just make you feel like a loser and you'll never be good enough? No, to point you to Jesus, who died because of your wrongdoing, who offers a solution to your wrongdoing. So... Shame says that I am something wrong. Guilt is that I did something wrong. Shame is that I am something wrong. So guilt says, I have stolen. Shame says, I'm a thief. Shame says, I'm an alcoholic. Guilt says, I have a problem with alcohol. You understand the difference? It may be what you wrestle with, but it's not who you are. And this is really good news for us because God does not identify us by our sins. He identifies us by the righteous life of his Son. Jesus, it says that God made Jesus who knew no sin to be sin for us. He became sin. He identified with us so that we could then be identified by the righteousness of God in him, in Jesus. When we say yes to Jesus, we are found in Jesus, and that's good news for us in the sight of the Father and the Holy Law. Very, very good news for us today. So you no longer have to identify yourself with your sin because Jesus became that sin in your stead, and you can become the righteousness of God in him. Now, I want to explain now the weight of sin. I want you to imagine with me this morning, technically this afternoon now, I want you to imagine with me that you stood before a holy God and a holy law with just one of your sins. Only one. And no mediator. No one to defend you, no one to vindicate you, no one to stand between you and this holy God and holy holy law. How would you be feeling right now? I need verbal feedback. What are emotions and thoughts that come to mind and how you would be feeling in that moment, standing before a holy God and a holy law with just one of yours? And I'm left with the impression you probably committed more than one like me. Am I right in that? Okay, but I'm just asking for one. Holy God and the holy law, how would you be feeling? Verbal feedback. Filthy. Scared. Shameful. No hope. Condemned. Great answer. It would be so hard for you physiologically and psychologically that you would probably drop dead from terror, right? This literally happens to people, that they have moments that scare them so strongly that they just drop dead. And the law requires blood, right? This this is something that's needed to atone for our transgression of the law. We're, We're toast. That's just for one of your sins. But I want you to imagine the shame, the condemnation, and the unmingled wrath of every god of God for every sin. I mean, all of your sins, not just the one, all of them. And every sin from the fall of Adam and Eve all the way until the second coming of Jesus Christ of every single human being, just amassed in a large pile, right? Just like a dump, a whole pile of the shame, condemnation, guilt, the inward pointing of the finger and shame and the unmingled wrath of God, all of that, Now heaped upon the shoulders of one man at one point in time. Now remember, you told me how you would feel with just one of your sins. Compound that by infinity. This is why Jesus tells the disciples in Matthew chapter 26 that my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. Jesus at this stage is to the point of the second death, talked about in Revelation chapter 20 and other places. He's already to the point of complete extinction and separation from the Father in a moment. Now, Jesus, when he walks into the garden and tells the disciples this, they're seeing a Jesus they'd never seen before. Jesus is always calm, cool, and collected all the time, but at this point in time, Jesus is a mess comparatively, he collapses to the ground the moment he sets foot in this garden, and the disciples have to help him up. He collapses again because this weight is now upon him, and they carry him forward, and the psychological agony that Jesus is incurring here is so intense that he's now physiologically bleeding through his pores. Jesus' body is in mass hysteria right now because, again, he's bearing all of the weight Of every sin that ever has been committed and ever will be committed why because he wants you to be justified he's becoming your sin at this point in time and receiving the wrath of God towards sin to spare you so that you can now become the righteousness of God in him but the story doesn't end there The disciples have always seen a Jesus who's calm, cool, and collected all the time. They don't know what to do with this guy and it's freaking them out at this stage. And he's usually calm, cool, and collected. You know, whenever the the waves are crashing over the sea, where's Jesus in the boat? Sleeping. He's fine. There's another situation where a demoniac stands up in the middle of the church service and says, what have we to do with you, Jesus, you son of God? Jesus rebukes the demon and the man sits in his calm and in his right mind. In another one of the gospel accounts, we see two naked demoniacs running at Jesus full steam at the Gadarenes. Jesus rebukes the demons, and it says in Luke's account, they were seated and clothed in the right mind. Jesus, calm, cool, and collected, but right now, they don't know who this is. And all their hopes are tied to someone who's yea tall by yea wide, and their perfect peace and confidence in the midst of every hardship. And now, Jesus, they don't know what to do. That Jesus is a wreck, the disciples are a wreck, they don't know what to do. But this process continues. You and I under the same situation can check out emotionally and psychologically, right? We have this hardware built within us that we go under heavy trauma, we just turn into vegetables, we just get the thousand yard stare, and we just check out when it gets to be too hot. The problem is Jesus isn't afforded that option. There's no escape hatch for Jesus. I mean, yes, Jesus technically can walk at any point in time, that's true, but he's not allowed to numb his pain and to check out. He suffers, and not only that, Jesus suffers alone. Jesus then begins this process of praying, wrestling with God and and begging him to change his mind. Jesus, begging the Father to change his mind. Three times. In this moment, we're told in the Desire of Ages that Jesus was longing for human sympathy and affection. Jesus, longing for human sympathy and affection, just for a touch, just a word of encouragement, just something at this stage. His human flesh is longing for that. And you know what Jesus gets from us? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. And Jesus continues to trod the winepress alone. Then this voice of sophistry comes to Jesus and says, Hey, Jesus, these people don't appreciate you. You should just leave them. Hey, Jesus, where are your disciples right now? Now, where are his disciples right now? They're sleeping. And of the the 11 remaining, because Judas has already bailed at this stage, certainly James, John, and Peter will be there for Jesus when he needs them. He even tells them, I need you to pray for me. They're sleeping. Jesus, the closest friends you have on earth right now don't care about you. The people you're about to die for, one of your disciples is betraying you this very moment. The people you're about to die for, they don't value you. They don't appreciate you. Jesus, just walk. And Jesus can walk right now. But he continues because he's thinking of you. Even when he's praying to the Father to change his mind, you come to Jesus' mind when he says the word, nevertheless. He's thinking of you. I want another way, Father, Father. But for them, if this is what it takes, I'll do it. He's thinking of you in his agony. We think about ourselves in our agony. Jesus is thinking about you. He continues. The cup that he's wrestling with, and he says, Father, please let this cup pass from me. It's the same cup mentioned in Revelation chapter 14. The cup of God's unmingled wrath that will be poured out upon the wicked, who were never supposed to be there, by the way. Matthew 25, 41 says, Depart from me, you curse, in the everlasting fire prepared for who? The devil and his angels. Humanity is not on that list. But God has to purge sin from the universe. The only people who are destroyed are those who would not relinquish their hold upon the thing that God's wrath is directed towards. And he's given us fair and ample warning. The only people who will be lost are the people who did not take hold of God's belief in them and the deliverance that he longed to give them. The unmingled wrath of God is being poured out on God. This is why Jesus can emerge from the tomb on Sunday morning because only God could receive the unmingled wrath of God and live to tell about it. But Jesus is enduring the wrath of God towards sin. Why? Because he became sin. The moment he set foot in that garden, that transaction began. And it was no picnic, I assure you. And then we're told, when he wrestles with God, after the third time, we're told in Desire of Ages that she says, his decision is firm. His decision is made. He will save man at any cost to himself. That, nevertheless, is your saving grace. And what ends up happening is that, actually, I'll go ahead and read this. We're told that God suffered with his Son. There was silence in heaven. And could mortals have viewed the amazement of the angelic host as in silent grief they watched the Father separating His beams of light, love, and glory from His beloved Son? They would better understand how offensive in His sight is sin. This is what sin does. God the Father had to remove rays of light from His Son because his son was identifying with what you did. This is your fault. This is my fault. We did this. And if we understood this, we were told to take a thoughtful hour every day reflecting upon this very time. Why? Because we forget it daily. You'd be lucky to hear this from a pulpit once a year, and yet we are told to spend a thoughtful hour reflecting upon this daily. We need this. We need to hear it more. We need to read and study it more because we forget daily what our sin did to Jesus and continually does to Jesus and to the Father because God suffered with his Son. But then God sends the angel from the right hand of the Father, according to Luke's account, to come down to where Jesus is and to do for Jesus what we did not do. And in Desire of Ages, we're given some more insight into this. We're literally told that this angel comes beside Jesus, and it says that he cradles the head of Jesus in his bosom and speaks tender words of encouragement to him, reminding him of the promises of God so that he'll keep going. God had to send an angel to do for Jesus what we did not do for him. We weren't there for him. But God loves him enough and he loves you enough to ensure that this process continues. We're told something very similar happened to John the Baptist in his lonely prison cell that angels were sent from heaven to remind him of the promises of God so that he would continue. That's good news. It's very good news. Because that means whenever I'm hurting and alone, he can do the same thing just for me, just for you. We're told that he would have died in the garden. Had this angelic visit not happened, the wrath of God was so severe, it was so difficult, Jesus never would have made it to the cross were it not for this. Just imagine what Peter, James, or John could have said if God was able to use them at that stage, if they were praying. Remember, Peter said, I'll never fail you. He failed him the most. We talked about that in Sabbath school, didn't we? And then he's betrayed by a kiss. Jesus is brought down. There's a group of guards here who have a whole bunch of implements that have nothing to do with what they're going to need for Jesus. He's a man of peace. Even when Peter tries to lop off Malchus's ear and does, Jesus says, put your sword in its place, Peter. I don't need your violence to protect my kingdom. I have legions of angels that could protect me if I needed it, but I don't. And they're not taking my life. I'm giving myself for them and for you. Put your sword away, Peter. Many of our own members need to put their swords away. Their violence is not helping the kingdom. It's not how it works. Jesus won the battle by giving and by living for them, not taking life from them or taking their liberty of conscience or choice from them. And when Jesus is being betrayed by a kiss by Judas, he has the unselfish love to refer to Judas as friend. Some of us in this room right now, there's people in our lives that we cannot call friend because we feel betrayed, we feel neglected and abandoned. Jesus can call Judas friend. You know what that means? By his strength, you can call them friend. Reconciliation is possible through the power of the cross, and it's needed because revival will not come to the Seventh-day Adventist Church without repentance and reconciliation. Those are prerequisites. That's what it took for the early reign, and that's what it's going to take for the latter reign: repentance and reconciliation. And we can start with me—not everybody else that needs to repent. Me. He's given an unjust trial. When the, where the word justice isn't even invited to the conversation, it's a sham of a trial. We're told in Isaiah chapter 52 that Jesus is literally beaten beyond the point of recognition. You cannot physically recognize who this man is anymore. And I'll leave it at that. His sufferings were physical, but they weren't only physical. You understand me? It's both. He's brought before the Jews. You know what they have to say? What we you have me do with the king and the Jews? They have, we, have, we will not have this man as Lord over us. We have no king but Caesar, and give us Barabbas. This, the very people Jesus came to save, that's what they had to say about him. We will not have this man as Lord over us. We have no king but Caesar. Give us Barabbas. But before we're too hard on the Jews, we do the same exact thing when we choose our choice sins over Jesus. We're just as guilty. We're no better than them. None of us. Every time you run to that choice sin instead of Jesus, you're saying the same thing. I will not have him as Lord over me. I have no king but Caesar. Give me Barabbas. That's what we do to Jesus. Sin costs something. It costs someone. And we can't run from that. We can't hide in our theological bunkers and our theological arrogance and assume that that's going to deliver us in that day. Then he's get brought to the cross. They nail him to this demonic torture device. They heed the stone in the air. They slam it in the ground. And every nerve and sinew of his body yanks downward. And fire runs through every nerve of his body. And yet we're told that the physical pain was hardly felt in comparison with the emotional, psychological, and spiritual agony that Jesus is incurring right now. was hardly felt. It was eclipsed by the other pain he was contending with. Then he is doubted and tempted by the people around him, saying, if you are the Son of God, save yourself. One of the men crucified beside him says, if you're the Son of God, save yourself and us. Irony of ironies, it's because Jesus is the Son of God that he's not coming down from that cross. And he's already saving them. They just haven't figured it out yet. He had to stay. Remember, he can leave you at any point in time. That voice of sophistry comes again. Hey, Jesus, you can leave. Listen to these people. You're going to die for them? And Jesus continues because he's thinking of you. The only concept that Jesus has had for 33 and a half years in his life on this earth is the presence and the approval of his Father, and now even this is gone. Jesus is fighting what he feels to be a battle completely alone. It's as if the Father doesn't even exist. He's nowhere to be found according to the experience of Jesus. He's tempted to believe this. And words come out of the mouth of Jesus that you would never expect to hear from God himself. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God is saying this. This is what your sin did to Jesus. This is what my sin does to Jesus. But we're given some amazing counsel and desire of ages, that in that thick darkness, God's presence was hidden. It looks like midnight at noonday, and you wonder why. Here's why. Just like on the Day of Atonement, whenever the priest could not go behind the veil until he first wafted the incense to protect himself from the unmingled wrath of God towards sin, same thing is what happens here at the cross. In the thick darkness, God's presence was hidden. He makes darkness his pavilion and conceals his glory from human eyes. God and his holy angels were beside the cross. The father was with his son, yet his presence was not revealed because had his glory flashed forth from the cloud, every human beholder would have been destroyed." It was an act of mercy from God that these people who deserve to die, who are crucifying his son, that even they could be saved and have another chance. God shrouds himself for their sake. Jesus doesn't need it. And in that dreadful hour, Christ was not to be comforted with the Father's presence. And he trod the winepress alone, and of the people there was none with him. And you know why? Because there's times that you and I tread the winepress alone. There's no one with us. And he did that for you. To be able to offer you a comfort and a strength that you don't have from anyone else. Not only did Jesus have to endure the deafening silence of God, he had to endure the silence of every friend he had on earth. And he can provide strength and solace to you in those same moments. That's good news for you today. It was bad news for Jesus on that day, but it's good news for you today. Amen. But there's one thing that keeps Jesus nailed to that cross and that keeps him going. You know what it is? It's you. It's the thought of losing you. Jesus cannot bear the thought of losing you. Heaven would not be a place to live for him if you could not be there. And some people are not going to be there. And he's going to suffer for eternity. God's sufferings do not end, even though ours do. The wicked have it way easier than God the Father does because their pain eventually ends. They eventually cease to exist. God's pain doesn't go away because people whom He created in His own image will never be there. So don't you tell me that God doesn't care. And then we're told that Jesus is incapable of seeing through the portals of the tomb at this stage. He is fully convinced in his own mind that he will never see the Father again. He will never see the light of day again. And even if this plan of salvation does work and you're saved, he's not going to be there to see it. Because he sees how offensive sin is in the sight of God. You know, when a child first realizes the darkness in the world and you see the light go out of a child's eyes, which is awful to see, Just imagine the experience that Jesus had. He's never sinned. He's never felt guilt. He's never felt shame. But yet in one moment in the garden, he's all of a sudden responsible for every sin that ever has been committed, every sin that ever will be committed, and he's bearing your shame. It's overwhelmingly unfamiliar to Jesus, his experience, while being separated from the only thing that he's known consistently for 33 and a half years, the presence and the approval of his father. This is what ended the life of Jesus. Yes, he died physically, but his sufferings are far deeper than that. This is why it says in John 13, verse 1, that having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. To the utter end of himself. Then Jesus ascends to heaven, and the angels... Blow a gasket. They're just losing their minds in praise to Jesus because even in this point, if you read the article, What was accomplished by the death of Christ? Even the angels were made more secure by the death of Jesus, not just us. The angels are in praise, and Jesus literally looked at the angels and says, No. No. And he presses into the presence of the Father and he has to know: was it enough? Was it sufficient? Have we achieved a victory for our children? And I can't imagine how emphatic the yes was that God the Father gave him. But I assure you, it was great. And the word amen was involved at least once. And when Jesus leaves the presence of the Father, then he accepts their worship, and all of heaven loses its mind. This is why we're told in Revelation chapter 12 that the heavens should rejoice but that the earth should be wary because the devil realizes he has but a short time because he's been cast down. Revelation 12 is the fulcrum of the plan of salvation. His arguments have lost all weight in heaven. Now the question is, what are you going to do with the information at hand? They've made up their minds. Have you? That's the question. Jesus overcame the devil and has made a way for you and I to now receive the fruit of that victory. We can overcome. Don't you dare let a preacher emasculate the gospel and tell you we're going to keep sinning until the second coming of Jesus. That's a lie. The cross is sufficient to cleanse from all sin, past, present, and future. Jesus intends for his people to be victorious and to stand on the sea of glass as a people who perfectly reflect the character of God. That's nothing to be afraid of. Nothing to be afraid of. The Christless presentation of that truth is something to be ashamed of. But that truth itself is not something to be afraid of because the gospel is good news. This is why so many of our members are not sharing their face because it's not good news for them. We don't realize that we ourselves are accepted in the beloved and that Christ can give us the ability to overcome. You don't have to scare people into evangelism anymore. The cross brings this radical change into people's experience. You're being told with the loudest language possible, beloved, that you are accepted in the beloved. And you're valued by God. We're told in Jeremiah 31 and verse 3 that the Lord has appeared of old to me saying, Yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. This is what the cross is meant to do. John 12, 32, I, if I be lifted up, will draw all men to myself. This is what our preaching should do. This is what our lifestyle should do. This is what our conversations with our godless neighbors should do. It should draw them to Jesus. There should be a salt of the love of Jesus in everything that we do. The love of Jesus isn't this hippie liberal stuff. It is the power of God to salvation, according to Romans 1. This is why Paul said that I'm not ashamed of the gospel, because he saw it could change his life. We shouldn't be ashamed of the gospel. It's good news. Jesus pours out his life to the dregs, knowing that you could walk. But Isaiah chapter 42, and verse 4 says that he will not fail nor be discouraged. He's not giving up on you, and I love this in Isaiah chapter 53, and verse 11. We'll get to that in a moment. But Jesus is a relentless pursuing lover, first of all, and he will not stop loving you until you breathe your last breath. But even then, he's going to miss you for eternity. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. This is the weight that he places on you individually, and this is the message that has to go to our world if we're going to go home in our lifetime. We've got to get this right, guys. We have to. Don't abandon the central pillars, right? I believe that the cross is the central pillar, and the sanctuary is all about the cross and the ministry of Jesus. We don't neglect those, we don't abandon them. But don't start talking about that stuff without an uplifted, suffering Messiah, because they find their power there. They're true, but they find greater power from heaven when they're centered in the cross of Christ. It's not an either or, it's a both and. This is the message that Jesus preached. This is the message the Old Testament foretold of. This is the message that the New Testament church fell in love with, and this is what we need to go home. And Jesus would have to go through all of this to redeem just one of us. Just one. We need to understand the fact that we bear responsibility for this. I am responsible for what I just explained. You're responsible for what I just explained. Read the format for all the sermons in the book of Acts, especially in the first seven chapters. The Old Testament prophecies foretold that Jesus would come. Your sins killed the Messiah. They said that in every one of their sermons. Repent. Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, and there's one-fifth one. I forget what it is. But this theme is regular. It should be part of our preaching. Your sins are responsible for the death of Jesus, but guess What? You were so much on the mind of Jesus that he would rather suffer and lose you than to never have a chance to have you. And it's that type of love, undeserved love, that draws you, that woos you, and it causes you to be willing to sacrifice anything for his sake. You want me to eat differently, dress differently, live differently, talk differently, be a better husband, a better father? You got it. It's the least I can do. And by your strength and by your grace, let's go. That's what the gospel is meant to do. My sins killed Jesus. And it does something, doesn't it? It does something to the human psyche to see this. And this is what we're supposed to have. The Romans 2 verse 4 says that the goodness of God leads to repentance. This is good news. Repentance is a gift from God, but it comes in response to the cross. And I believe the new covenant and realizing all of what God is willing to do for you when you don't deserve it. But Romans chapter 5 and verse 8 says that knowing all of this stuff that Jesus would go through, that God showed his own love for us. Some of us wrestle with unhealthy pictures of God the Father. We can roll with Jesus, but the Father is just a mystery to us. We see him as this, like, disconnected, disappointed parent who just wait for me to blow it so he can push the red button. But Romans 5.8 says that God showed his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That means that God did not buy a used car on, you know, cartrader.com or whatever, Auto Trader, and pop the hood when he got home and realized that this thing is just a mess inside. He knows more about the depths of your brokenness than you do. And I'm just going to be honest with you this morning. You're way uglier than you think you are. And so am I on the inside. You're good-looking people, but on the inside, we're a mess. And God knows the depths of that ugliness, and he still paid that price. And for each of you individually. Do not hide behind corporate acceptance today. John 3.16 is true. God did so love the world, but God so also loved you. And you, and you, and you. You can accept that today. And don't hide behind corporate accountability either. Yes, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but you've sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I've sinned and come short of the glory of God. Corporate experiences don't give us the full answer. We have to take individual responsibility and individual acceptance. So the question is, if Jesus can forgive you and God the Father can forgive you, why is it that we wrestle so strongly with believing that we can be accepted and forgiven? Why is it that you won't forgive you? I'll tell you why. There's an accuser of the brethren in Revelation 12. His name is Satan, and he's a liar. And the father of lies. That's not how Jesus views you. Any thoughts of shame and condemnation do not come from Jesus. He uses guilt and conviction. Those point you to Jesus. Shame and condemnation make you feel so overwhelmed with unworthiness that you can't even come to Jesus. Listen to one... And ignore the other. Believe the truth as it is in Jesus. This is why it says in Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 11 that knowing all of what Jesus would have to do, it says that he shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. And by his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many and he shall bear their iniquities. He's satisfied before he goes through it. While he's going through it, he's satisfied. After he goes through it and looks back, he's satisfied. Why? Because you're justified. You're justified, he's satisfied. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's good news for you today. That's the answer for justification. Wherever you've been, whatever you've done, if you see your need of Jesus, in this very moment, you can repent. You can ask God to forgive you of your sins, and you can come home. He's waiting on you at the edge of his property, just like the prodigal son's father. He's waiting on you to come back. And when you come back, he's waiting to greet you with open arms. You can be justified today. By saying yes to Jesus, forsaking your sins, and letting Jesus do in you, through you, and for you what you couldn't do for yourself, this very moment you can stand justified before the Father and have assurance of salvation. Right now. If you're overwhelmed with shame and condemnation and unworthiness, that can end today in response to the cross. That's good news. That's what God wants for you. I want to close with this thought. There's some other things I usually share that say what the cross achieved, but I think I'm probably out of time. I don't even know how long it's been. My computer freaked out, and yeah, it's been 50 minutes. I should probably stop. So um, let me close with this quote, and then maybe what I'll do is like a a nice little freebie is right before this afternoon's message, I'll walk through that briefly. Unless someone says, no, just keep going, then I'll keep going and not feel guilty. It's up to you, but I'll finish this first, then you say that. Okay. Okay. All right, good on you. I leave tomorrow, so you can kick me out at like 5 o'clock. So this is from Ella White, who wrestled herself with assurance of salvation, if you didn't know, um, coming into her Christian experience. The first two to three chapters of the first volume of the testimonies covers this. Beautiful. Here's the point. Someone was just wrestling that they could be saved by God, and she had counsel given by God to her for this person. This is what she says. The Lord has given me a message for you, not for you only, but also for other faithful souls who are troubled by doubts and fears regarding their acceptance by the Lord Jesus Christ. Some of us may be thinking, hit the next slide, man, because that's me. His word to you is, fear not, for I have redeemed thee. I have called thee by thy name. Thou art mine. You're wrestling with assurance of salvation. You're wrestling with feeling good enough. God's immediate response is, you're mine. I've paid for you, I've redeemed you, I've called you by my own name, you're mine. You desire to please the Lord, and you can do this how? By believing His promises, by believing what the Word of God says about you, not the accuser of the brethren. We have sympathy for the one that uses us like a plow mule, and we don't believe Jesus. You can please God by believing what His Word says about you. He's waiting to take you into a harbor of gracious experience, and he bids you, be still and know that I am God. Psalm 46, 10. You've had a time of unrest, but Jesus says to you, come unto me, and I will give you rest. The joy of Christ in the soul is worth everything, and then are they glad because they are privileged to rest in the arms of everlasting love. Your justification is not based upon what you do. It's based upon what Christ has already done, and it's accepted by faith. And it's maintained by walking by faith, by walking in the Spirit and not in the flesh. Walking in the flesh, according to my understanding of Romans 7, is not taking responsibility for your sin. Not taking responsibility, continuing to do your own thing, walking in the Spirit is continually depending upon God. This is why it says in Romans 8, i will cover this this afternoon, that what the law could not do, save us, God did. How? By sending His Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and on account of sin, He condemned sin in the flesh, overcame sin in the flesh. Why? So that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. If you're walking according to the Spirit, you'll walk in harmony with the commandments. There's nothing wrong with that. It's not legalism. It's a transaction of love. That's it. Nothing to be afraid of there. The gospel is also not a license to sin. And it's not a means by which we bring ourselves into God's favor with our works. That's Babylon. Just so you know, Babylon in end-time theology and in prophecy is not just the Roman Catholic system that's founded upon works. It's any man-made religion in which you do works to bring yourself into the favor of God. We have brethren in our own ranks that are in Babylon right now. They're part of the remnant, but they're living an experience in Babylon. And God says, come out of that. And I'm actually going to explain this here in just a moment. So what was accomplished here? The everlasting gospel is a message that will lead people to uh, to fear God and give glory to Him. When you encounter the cross, you are in fear of offending Him and in fear of disappointing Him. And you want to live your life to the glory of God. First angel's message made practical. The gospel leads to that everlasting gospel first. And it's an appeal to the everlasting gospel is that. The suffering Messiah leads to the appeal to prepare. Why? Because you're living in the day of judgment. But whenever you're living in a day of judgment with the suffering Messiah who's atoned for your sins, you're not ashamed. You can stand with great confidence that God is my mediator, Christ is my mediator. Now, will we feel that I got everything together at any stage? No, but you're going to be wholly dependent upon Jesus every step of the way, right? Unworthy though you may feel, if you're depending upon Christ as your righteousness, you're viewed as righteous, And this is the difference between imputed and imparted righteousness, so we'll deal with that this afternoon. That's a big misunderstanding in our church of not knowing what those words mean. That, I believe, is the answer to assurance of salvation. That's at 345. But it can lead you to stand in the judgment unashamed because you are continually abiding and connected and surrendered to Jesus. Whatever he says, I'll do. The 144,000 follow the Lamb wherever he goes. Whatever Jesus says do, you do because you love him. You know he loves you, and he would never lead me someplace that's going to lead to my harm or even my unhappiness, steps to Christ tells us. People are cherishing this view that God is is pleased to see his children suffer. And she said, we need not think that. She says, all of heaven is interested in the happiness of man. So the only place the lamb is going to lead me is where I would want to go if I could see the end from the beginning. That's what we're told. Obedience is not a bad thing. Surrendering your will daily, decision by decision, is not a bad thing. It's good news. The problem is, the person we're surrendering to we think is abusive and neglectful. That's why we wrestle. And this is why the everlasting gospel is the preface for everything else that comes. It's also a message that overthrows Babylon's way of thinking. When you encounter the everlasting gospel, penance is offensive to you. We have our own form of penance, it's called outreach for some of us. I love outreach. It's the gospel commission, but some of us are trying to do things to get God off our back because we know we failed him during the week. You should serve God, repent, and serve God some more. I'm not saying don't serve God, but some of us are doing deeds in our church that are good deeds. We're eating differently, we're dressing differently, but we're doing it for the wrong reasons, and our motives matter. Ellen White goes so far as to say in Christ's Object Lessons, I think, or maybe it's in Desire of Age, she says, they do not obey. When they do it, just out of the sense of drudgery and obligation. She says, that's not obedience in the eyes of God. I don't think it is either, because you don't care. Your heart's not in it. God says, for what, sin, for what reason comes frankincense and, and Sheba for me? He says, your offerings are not pleasing to me. Why? Because I wanted your heart. It's the heart that brings the worship to God that is desirable. And when your heart is right, when your heart is surrendered, every act of obedience you give is a fragrant offering before God, not to be saved, but because you are saved. You couldn't do it without Jesus. Uh, Ephesians 2.8 alludes to this. It says that we're saved by grace and that not of ourselves, lest anyone should boast, right? That's Ephesians 2.8. So, third thing is, through an encounter with the faith of Jesus, the faith of Jesus is that he treats you as you are in Christ, as you will become, but he views you as that now. When you have that, and that's what the whole cross is all about, the faith of Jesus was not Jesus' just faith in his Father. It was his view of you that this is worthy because I know that in me, you are worthy. You'll receive what you deserve uh, because you're going to receive what I deserve. And that's what it says, actually, that we receive the things that Christ deserves. We become heirs with God and joint heirs with Christ. And so what happens for us when we say yes to Jesus? The faith of Jesus is that he treats you differently than you actually are, awakening within you to become what he saw you could be. And we can vouch for this. We've had mentors and people who saw something in us that we didn't see in us. And by believing what they said, we became something we never thought we could become. That's what the gospel is. He sees something of great value in you that he was willing to give all, knowing that you would mature if you accepted that by faith. So when we encounter the faith of Jesus, it awakens a faith in Jesus within us. That's what Romans 8 says, from faith to faith. Go to Romans chapter 1. We'll look at this real quick. You gave me permission. So if I get any rumblies and any tumbleys out there, that's with your permission. Romans chapter eight, uh, 1, sorry, in verse 16 and 17. So we're asking, what did the cross accomplish? We're just kind of walking through the three angels' messages briefly, um, and then we'll cover a couple other things, and then we'll close. We're almost done. Romans chapter 1 verse 16 and 17 says, "'For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ.' Why? "'For it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek.'" For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. The faithfulness of God to his covenant is revealed. This is the amazing thing about the covenants. Because every person that God made a covenant with failed, Jesus came as man and as God so that the hand of of flesh could take hand with divinity and be reunited in covenantal faithfulness. And when this happened, this allowed us to be reconnected with God. Jesus walked a successful human experience and he lived as God. That gives us the opportunity to be reconnected with God because it says, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from his faith in us to our faith in him. From the faith of Jesus to the faith in Jesus, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. The people who live by faith believe the things about them that God believes. That's what faith is, it's believing what God believes. This is the experience that God wants for us. Revelation 14.12 says something very similar. That here are they that keep the commandments of God. Why? Because they took hold of the faith of Jesus. You cannot keep the commandments of God without Jesus living in you. And it's an encounter with the faith of Jesus that leads you to accept Jesus. Does that make sense? That's what Revelation 14, 12 is meant to show. The, 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 these are the consequences of someone accepting Jesus, right? Not the prerequisites to receive Jesus. You understand the difference? You don't keep the commandments to then receive salvation. You keep the commandments because you already received salvation. It's a fruit of salvation. Right? So this faith enables us to receive Christ's imputed and imparted righteousness, which leads us to keeping the commandments of God. I already read 2 Corinthians 5, 19-21, and I already did from memory, Romans 8, 3-8. For what the law could not do, save us, God did. We already covered that. Revelation 14:12 is another verse that says a very similar thing. So, and my slides, by the way, I'm going to give to Joe and he will make sure that if anyone wants them, they can get them through email or whatever in case you're I'm, I'm moving too fast. I'm giving all my slides and the audio from this week to him so you can have them after the fact, okay? So I still want to be a good steward of your hunger. Um, so in Romans chapter five and verse 10, this is the imputed, imparted thing really briefly. The, actually, an aspect of the gospel, I should say. Romans chapter five, verse 10. This is super important because it's not just the death of Jesus that we need. If all we're talking about is the death of Jesus, we're not actually preaching the full gospel. And here's why. Romans chapter 5 and verse 10. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God, brought back into fellowship with God, through what? The death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by what? By his life. So, the wages of sin is death. Now, not to insult your intelligence, but a wage is what you deserve as a result of the work that you performed. Paul's language is amazing here because he contrasts that with the gift of God in eternal life, which is Christ Jesus. You don't deserve the gift, right? So what I owe the law and what I owe God, according to my sins, is death. Jesus' death cancels out the death that I owe because of my transgression, when I accept Jesus, of course, not just universalism. Here's the problem, though. Now that I've accepted that, I now need to live a life that is free of sin in word, thought, or deed until the second coming of Jesus, or I go right back into debt. I now need access to a life that I have not lived. And this is where the second part of this verse matters. It's not just the death of Jesus. That's the imputed righteousness, by the way, that Jesus clears my debt before the Father. That's imputed righteousness, that's justification. But the life of Jesus affords me a holy life. The Holy Spirit makes that a reality of my experience after I accept Jesus and he starts imparting righteousness to me. Portion by portion, I start living out a righteous life, step by step as I grow, right? We're told sanctification is is a work of a lifetime, but we will get there, right? It's it's a process, not a purchase, sanctification, right? You can't walk out with it the same day, but it's a process that ends in success. I wanna make sure that's clear. And that's sanctification. And this is a really good summation of this in the Review and Herald, June 4, 1895. This is what we're told. The righteousness by which we are justified is imputed. The righteousness by which we are sanctified is imparted. The first is our title to heaven. The second is our fitness to heaven. So when you say yes to Jesus, you're viewed as righteous all the way until the second coming of Jesus or your death, as long as you continually yield to the prompting of the Holy Spirit in obedience to whatever he's asking you to do. Each day, he's imparting righteousness to you to make that more of a reality in your outward manifestation. Does that make sense? This is how you grow. So this is how you can have assurance of salvation. If you can't make it this afternoon, because I'll go into more in depth, imputed righteousness is basically getting a degree. Imparted righteousness is when you start taking classes. You get the degree at the beginning as if you're a graduate. But day by day, you're taking classes. But guess what? If you leave class or drop out, you lose everything. The whole process starts all over again. This isn't once saved, always saved. But these two prongs of imputed and imparted righteousness are what show us that we're not saved in and of ourselves, we can't just live for ourselves and assume we're going to be okay in the end, but there's also a hope. Does that make sense? It's a perfect balance. My deeds don't save me, but my deeds can not get me lost, right? My deeds that are of a good form solely come from Jesus. That's the point. All right. Uh, now when we have this encounter with the gospel we now have a story we're asking what was accomplished by the cross we now have a story that will call all men to Jesus and draw all men to Jesus we read those texts already Jeremiah 31.3, John 12.32 we also have a new identity that's free from shame and condemnation we already read 2 Corinthians 5.21 John 3.17 says I did not come into the world to condemn the world but that the world through me might be saved you know who said that? Jesus. So when you're hearing a voice of condemnation, it's not Jesus. That's John 3, 17. John 8, 11 says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more, I think. I think that's John eight eleven. We also, when we accept the gospel, become sons and daughters of God and joint heirs with Christ. And all of Romans 8 basically alludes to this. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for those who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. But then it says that we become sons and daughters of God. That's good news. And we're no longer ashamed of the gospel because we've come to see that this is indeed the power of God to salvation. This is what the gospel should lead to, according to Romans 1, 16 and 17. Also, in Revelation chapter 12, verses 10 to 12, Satan and his arguments are overthrown and lose all access in heaven and hopefully in the human heart too because of the cross experience. This is why it says in Revelation 12:10, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of the brethren who accused him before our God day and night has been cast down. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. Why? Because the lives they were living were going to lead to death. And they chose to lay those down and accept the life that Christ had for them. That's good news. And they're actually going to overcome the devil. We're actually going to overcome. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows that he has a short time. So this victory made heaven, the angels, and the redeemed more secure. Now, uh, so what was accomplished at the cross? He swept me off my feet and Jesus earned the right to receive your trust, your love, and your heart. This is what the cross was meant to achieve. This is what I believe the cross did achieve. It's good news. That's why the gospel is good news because it's supposed to be good news. Now, this afternoon, I'm going to deal with the covenants and what righteousness by faith looks like, how obedience comes into human experience to some degree, and we'll pack even more on the ministry of the Holy Spirit at 3:45, okay? But I would be remiss if I didn't give an opportunity at the close of this morning's message to make an appeal. I'm not asking you to come forward weeping at the altar. I'm not asking for that. But some of us have seen a more beautiful picture of Jesus than we ever imagined was possible. Some of us have found more hope for our own experience than we knew was possible. And I would hate for Jesus to be deprived of the opportunity for you to acknowledge that publicly. So if you've heard an experience today of Jesus that makes you want to recommit your life or maybe even just re- just commit for the first time, if you find yourself in that position today when you realize that the love of Jesus is beyond my wildest expectations, and I would be a fool to say no to that. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons,